0: Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This, this. is News Talk.
1: Well, you're welcome along to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. You can listen back to all of our podcasts on Newstalk.com or on iTunes. And as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing Between the Lines at Newstalk.com or on Twitter at myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, coming up today, we'll be discussing health insurance, everything from consumer choice, price rises and also the private versus the public provision. To join us today to discussing all of the issues in studio, our panel today, Dermot Good, TotalHealthCover.ie. Also, Patrick Brennan, Director of Corporate Business with IHI Group. And we're also joined on the line today by Dr. Brian Turner, Department of Economics at Cork University Business School at UCC. My thanks to you all for joining us um, today on the programme. Can I just maybe start um, at the outset today by just asking you all maybe just to give us a very brief one minute synopsis of just what it is that you do in your respective um, occupations just so the, the listeners understand obviously where your interests lie I might maybe Dr Brian Turner just start obviously with yourself.
2: OK, well, I suppose uh, my interest in, in health insurance really stemmed from when I uh, used to work in the Health Insurance Authority, the, the regulatory agency for the, the health insurance market in Ireland uh, in the early 2000s. Uh, so then, uh, unfortunately, as an economist, uh, I have to say I had no economic foresight of the, the car crash into which we were hurtling at the time. So in the mid 2000s, I, I decided to come back and become a full time student in UCC again, do my PhD on the health insurance market for my sins. Um, and I suppose I've just continued to research the market uh, since then. Um, and also, I, I teach uh, about insurance issues and, and health economics to, to my students as well. So,
1: so very much my area of interest. Yeah, in, in, the, uh, in the academia area. Can I ask yourself, Dermot Good?
3: So, Dermot Good from Total Health Cover. So, um, I suppose I've been working in the health insurance market now for about 30 years. I previously worked with VHI and with Boop Ireland. So, we are a broker. We specialise in giving impartial advice on every aspect of healthcare in Ireland. So, whether it's health insurance covering all 340 plans with VHI Layer Irish Life, or cash plans, or dental cover. So that's what we specialize in. So whether it's an individual policy, or a family policy, or a company scheme, uh, we provide advice on on all aspects of that. I also do a lot of talks to consumer groups around the country, basically helping people, I suppose, avoid the pitfalls and and save money. And they're going to have to save money now with the rates going back up again. I'm afraid.
1: And just Patrick Brennan, finally yourself.
0: Well, the IHI Group is effectively much like Dermot. It's a it's a brokerage, uh, which probably specializes in the uh, the corporate space so we be aware of all the same changes that are going on in the health insurance market and keeping our clients aware of it and the choices available to them across the full spectrum mm-hmm. whether it's health dental etc uh, probably a big part as well as the regulatory environment and impacts on companies whether they're new uh, long standing or coming in on the back of Brexit or fdi companies and and uh, that's very much the same mm-hmm. as Dermot but with a focus more so corporate
1: Okay know. no, It's just important I suppose really that the listeners understand who yeah. it is that they're that they're hearing from today Look, There's a lot of different elements we'll, we'll come to and I suppose um, I know from talking to people specifically about health insurance the one thing people always want to know was you know the, the what plan should I be on and when is the time to move and all of that kind of stuff and we will come certainly to that consumer element mm-hmm. of uh, of health insurance but just to kind of set the scene for us can I maybe just ask um, maybe yourself Dermot Good just to start with yourself to just outline how the current um, health insurance system works just particularly in terms of the provision of public and private health care as it currently stands in Ireland today
3: OK so well every consumer is entitled to access our, our public health care system um, and people the first myth people think that's free and it's not free every every consumer unless they have a medical card they must pay at least 80 euro per night um, up to 10 nights in any one year and that that's also is for young children so they have to pay that charge as well um, I suppose the, the the conflict between both systems, Andrea, is a lot of people feel that the public system should support them because they fund that through their taxes, uh, and that should be the case. But we're all aware of the waiting list, so there's probably about five hundred and seventy thousand people now waiting for an appointment through the public system, and there's another eighty thousand people who've had that appointment who are now waiting for surgery. So unfortunately, and those lists are not reducing. So that's why. Half the people who have health insurance, and there's about 2.25 million people now in this country who pay Mm. for private health insurance on top of the public hospital entitlement. And they do so primarily because they are afraid of these waiting lists. It's not because they want a private room or they want a semi-private room. They just want to make sure that they can get treated straight away. Thankfully, I suppose the market went through a bit of a crisis um, in the economic downturn. But now with more people back at work, we see more people returning to private health care. Um, But we still have this, you know, everybody comments on this two tier system. Mm -hmm. Like, why do we need to pay for private health insurance? And I've worked in this market for 30 years and successive governments have said, we're going to get rid of this two tier system. Unfortunately, they've all failed. And and until they sort out the waiting lists issue in the public system, they're, they're not going to, let's just say, resolve the two tier issue. And and now the issue we have on the private health insurance side, I mean, I worked on the market when there was only 15 plans, so there was no choice whatsoever. Now we have nearly 340 plans. So now there is fantastic choice and there's corporate plans and nurses' plans and teachers' plans. So whilst there's plans to suit everybody's budget, um, a lot of people find it very confusing now as to how to pick out the right plan mm-hmm. for them, you know. So um, what we try and do is, is, I suppose, help people through the confusion and point out the pitfalls. So straight away, I'd say to any of your listeners, if they're on the same plan for three years or more, If they're paying more than one thousand eight hundred per adult. If they haven't looked at a corporate plan, they are definitely overpaying on their cover and now rate increases are coming their way Mm. so it's going to get even more
1: expensive. A couple of different things I just want to pick up on maybe with Patrick and Brian just in terms of what Dermot said. But just interestingly, because people do have this idea that we do have a free health system or um, we should have a free healthcare system in Ireland but as Dermot pointed out, you do have to pay a fee whether it's the (laughs) initial fee at the casualty department Mm. or whatever it is, the consultation uh, with with the doctor or consultant. Is that effectively an administrative uh, fee, Patrick Brennan? The people are paying uh,
0: Well I suppose the question is is 80 is, euro representing the real cost of the care given no it's not so I mean it must be in some respects it's is it administrative well the argument is, is that we pay in the background through our taxes now through two different taxes for PRSI and, and, and USC um, so well, I'm, what's what's the question are we paying adequately for the care that we should expect well let's have a look let's go back to before the recession back of the days of the Celtic Tiger Uh, Brian you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong on this but I'm pretty sure that every cent of income tax PAY income tax that was earned at that point was finding its way into the HSE we were pretty much living on other taxes so health sectors in every country are behemoths and the costs are rising and we all look to different countries whether it's uh, uh, France or the NHS mm. or in extreme examples even Cuba but very often you're going to find that most of these healthcare systems are, are struggling at the seams as well to keep things going in terms of costing them and providing care that's expected.
1: So is a lot of this Brian Turner down to the fact that it's, it's really kind of the, the increased cost of medical treatment? Is that why there is this two-tier system?
2: Well, I suppose the first thing to say is that in terms of the two-tier system, I mean, we're not unusual in Ireland in having a mixture of public and private provision and a mixture of public and private funding. Where we are unusual is in the degree of overlap between the two, uh, because in in most countries, the two are, are much more separate. Um, and I think that's, that's what Sláinte is trying to do now, is, mm. is trying to kind of increase the separation between the public and the private systems. But in terms of uh, the, the overall cost of healthcare, I mean, certainly if you look at the figures globally, uh, healthcare costs are rising, not just on a per capita basis, but also as a proportion of GDP. So uh, a, a, a bigger and bigger proportion of economic activity in the country is dedicated towards uh, the health system. And now internationally, are discussions starting as to okay what level is sustainable what proportion is sustainable because you know ultimately if if healthcare takes up a greater proportion of of economic activity on an ongoing basis at some point it's going to push out all the other areas of economic activity that we need to spend money on so what what's the the sustainable level um, and I suppose no, nobody's quite found the answer to that yet, but it, it certainly is increasing uh, globally, and has been for, for for decades now at this stage. C-
1: can I just ask you, maybe Dermot Good, just because Brian mentioned the idea Launch of a care, and it was something I was going to come to a little bit later in the programme. But what are the difficulties that you see in terms of trying to address this kind of so-called two-tier system that we have in Ireland at the moment? Because it's going to be very difficult to ask the likes of your medical uh, professionals, your consultants, to to Maybe pick which side they want to be on, the private or the public, which is often the case actually in the, the in the NHS, in the British system.
3: No, it, it, it is. And and so let, let's take Slaunter Care and, and look at, at one level, it's very easy to knock, you know, reports to come out. Um, and in fairness to this report, it is a cross-party report. So, um, but we would have serious concerns about some of the aspects of the, of the report and also what's missing from it. Because... Um, like one of the things that was covered in the media quite recently was this proposal, which let's stop people with private health insurance going into public hospitals as private patients. Now, on paper, that sounds fine. But until you sort out the waiting list, Andrea, so can, right now, if I have a young child who needs a tonsillectomy, um, that child will wait six months on the public system to get the tonsillectomy. The only way I have to get that child treated straight away in Crumlin or Tala or whatever is to go privately to an ENT specialist and I can probably get the procedure done in three weeks. Now, that procedure could cost three or €4,000. So I either pay for it myself out of my own pocket or I have health insurance. They're now proposing with Care that everybody will be treated equally in the public hospital. So whether you have private health insurance or not, it makes no difference. Now, that's fine once you have no waiting lists. And, and this is what the mm-hmm. report misses. There is no specific concrete proposals in there that's going to set out how over the next 10 years, which is the time frame for this. And by the way, we're in year four already, how they're going to eliminate 650,000 people um, off those waiting lists. And until you do that, then that aspect of slanted care, in my view, hasn't a prayer of, let's just say, being implemented. And the other thing is, I mean, it's quite aspirational, the report, because they're expecting that all consultants who have contracts, let's just say, to do work mm-hmm. in the public system, they're expecting that they'll all give up their private work and move across to the public system. But there's 500 vacancies already that they can't fill. And what will happen is, and we've we've already heard comments from consultants and consultants' bodies on this, is that a lot of consultants will decide just to do private work and therefore we'll be back to a two-tier system where unless you have health insurance, you might not be able to see the most eminent orthopedic specialist in the Beacon or the Hermitage because they only treat private patients. And, and the other thing, and I, I have to say... You know, my commercial hat on here. Uh, The health, the health insurers at the moment give about six hundred and fifty million euro a year to the public system for treating public patients and patients privately in the public Mm -hmm. system. The proposal is let's stop that income, let's cut off that income flow, uh, which is a lot of money to let's just say to let's just say cut off and pass that on to consumers by way of extra taxation. That just doesn't make sense. You, You know, you don't cut off the hand that feeds you. And what I suppose one of the things we would always say is. Well, if you're getting 650 million a year, ring fence that. And now why don't you increase capacity in the public hospitals to basically, you know, cater for the public patients? The, the one other thing, and Brian has touched on this, Andrea, as well, is that our public health care system, our healthcare system in Ireland is facing a massive crisis. Because if you forget about public or private for the moment, the number of people aged over 50 and 60 will triple in the next 25 to 30 mm. years.
1: Which should be a good thing.
3: Absolutely. It's, I mean, in terms of people, let's just say, lifespan and so forth and people looking after themselves, I mean, people are much more progressive and looking after their healthcare. The problem is, if we look at the demands on our current healthcare system in this country, it cannot cope. Uh, and that demand on the system is going to, let's just say, be multiplied. And the other one thing as well, just to finish on, on mm-hmm. slow to care on this, is that one thing it ignores in the report is that like 15% of people with health insurance... Uh, 300,000 members only have plans that cover public hospitals. So if they bring in this aspect, those plans are now obsolete. That's 300,000 people that fall back on a public system straight away or else they have to pay double the premium to be covered for private hospitals as well. So... There's a lot of things in that report that we just would have concerns about in terms of when it comes to implementing that, that we just don't see it being being yeah.
1: viable. C- can I just bring you in, perhaps, Brian Turner? I'll, Turner, I'll come back to you maybe in, in just a moment because I know you've mentioned the idea of launch care and just to give us, I suppose, the the academic viewpoint. But can I just bring you in as well, Patrick Brennan on launch care? Just having listened to Dermot Good there, just what's your take on how we're going to address the, well, ideas of capacity and waiting lists in terms of?
0: Yeah, I was listening to Dermot there, and the first thing he said is crucial. The first thing is. Uh, the, you know, the idea behind removing a need for public health care system is making, or sorry, private health care system is making public fit for purpose. And we have to be very careful that there's not a sense of begrudgery for those who currently have private health insurance and that we understand that the need of taking people off. The, in other words, to break it down very simply, you can't ask people to leave the fast queue until the slow queue is no longer the slow queue. Uh, because if you can pay for it, time and time, again, Dermot gave mm. the example there of, of a tonsillectomy and very often I've heard people on the radio use phrases like, well, you know, it's only for elective procedures. Uh, take, take for example, grommets. You take a mother whose child uh, is being told by a consultant they're hearing as though they're hearing underwater at a time when they're acquiring language. Yeah. Now tell her that's elective if, she t- if the public waiting list is 22 months and you can meet a consultant on a Monday privately and have the procedure done on a, on a Friday. So people are willing to pay for that to the so the m- number of 2.2 million. Um, Dermot then also mentioned how there's 650 million from the private sector going to the public sector. So we have Sláinte Care now suggesting that that be pulled away. And yet we only go back a number of years and it was James Riley who, who, who brought in a measure to further increase the amount of money made available uh, to public hospitals by private health insurers or private health insured. Um, and we've also heard in the past number of years the stories of bed blockers. Well, now there is an incentive for bed blockers. You can have a patient in a bed for 30 nights uh, while awaiting a procedure and various tests. And this happens, and it happens for a lot longer than 30 nights. And the, the, insur- the, the hospital is making over £1,000 a night. The cost of the procedure itself might only be five mm-hmm. or £6,000. Um, there's many hospitals, uh, very acute hospitals in, 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 in Ireland and Dublin, where their operating times may be less than 50% of the week. Um, so there's there's huge inefficiencies and that's only in the that's only in the uh, the private okay. the, 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 the secondary system the hospital sector if we go in and look at their plans for primary care clinics as well increasing them what happens then with with public practitioners such as speech and language therapists and audiologists? what happens with regards to the plan for covering maternity leave which may be six months to a year there are areas in the country where those Places are left open, yeah. with nobody servicing them. Um, so it is a big thing to get there, mm-hmm. to get our heads around. But certainly, the private system is very functional in terms of where the public system is not functional.
1: Okay, C- can I just bring you mm-hmm. in, Dr. Turner, on some of the some of the points that have been mentioned, and I suppose how we might address the current system that we have and how we can improve it with regards to the the implementation of Slauncher Care down the line. Because the one thing I I find fascinating is somebody that uses both the public and private healthcare systems. I have private health insurance. I know myself recently having um, needed or required a consultant appointment, I was nearly going to have to wait up to two years in some cases, even for a dermatologist consultant appointment. But yet I could cross the border 20 minutes up the road at home and I can get the same consultant dermatologist appointment within a week.
2: Well, that's the thing, and I suppose that ultimately that's that's what a lot of people are paying for their health insurance for, is that that speed of access. Now, I suppose there's one thing to, to, to come back to in terms of the, the removal of private practice from public hospitals. I, I don't think that's, that the effect of that is going to be as dramatic as, as as a lot of people think it might be, because if you look at the figures, <clears throat> excuse me, about three quarters uh, of the people who go into uh, public hospitals are public patients. And of the private patients, about three quarters of those go in uh, through emergency departments. So if you remove private practice out of of public hospitals, the the people who are currently private patients who are going in through emergency departments will still go through the emergency departments just as public patients. So it's really where the difference is going to come is in the elective procedures for private patients in public hospitals. And that accounts for less than 3% or around about 3% of uh, procedures in, in public hospitals. So, if, if it's essentially, only about, that's it's only really about, what you're taking Yeah,
1: on. it's only about 3%, you said? Didn't actually the the elective
2: work of, for, for private patients in public hospitals, it comes from about 3%, yeah.
1: Do you, you so seem it, to disagree? It's, it's it's can to I, I just bring maybe Dermot Good in on that? Are you in agreement with that, or well, do you think it's...? No, I,
3: I can see where Brian is coming from, but but, but we need to be careful we need to be careful with the figures here. Like, so, for example, Brian is right. Like, if I collapse or I have an accident or an amulet is called, I'll be brought to the A&E in Vincent's Public Hospital. Um, And they, you know, if I have a cruciate ligament, let's just say damage, well, they'll strap me up, they'll give me anti-inflammatories and they'll send me away. But my my appointment to see that consultant won't be for six to eight months. And then what happens is in terms of the massaging of figures, you know, I might get an appointment, we'll say for six months time, a day before the appointment, I get a phone call to say, sorry, that's bounced out three months, bounced out three months. You know, so even when we see we see indicators where people let's just only wait three months for an MRI, that's not representative of exactly what happens on the ground. And, and now what's happening in the public hospitals um, and I've had you know, personal experience of this and everybody has personal stories, but, you know, into the local public hospital told there's 49 people ahead of us, told we won't see her for 12 hours and actually there was no sitting room even on the floor in the A&E on the Monday night and my daughter we were told oh by the way do you have health insurance? We were told you know what you do now go home and go into the Hermitage A&E clinic tomorrow morning. So we see more and more people being let's just say redirected from the public system mm-hmm. back into the private system. Now in fairness you could argue that's people trying to be helpful But that's a dysfunctional public system and actually that now andrea is what's fueling the rising claims costs so if you look at what's happening now which in a way you could argue is a good thing but the main driver for the latest round of price increases and we've had two rounds of price increases now since june and we will probably have more early next year more and more people are not going to that public system anymore because they know they can't rely on it they're going straight into the E in the beacon or in the hermitage and basically they're going privately from a or from start to finish. Mm, okay. and, and that's good. They have the health insurance to do that.
1: Can I bring you back in just Brian Turner? In in relation to I suppose the, the, the uh the points you were making, I know I, I I cut across you just to bring in Dermot Good on, on some of the issues there as well. But like how, how do you envisage that we'll address this?
2: Well, I suppose it, it, it is going to take a lot of time, um, as a, just, just in terms of the, the removal of private practice and public hospitals. If you free up three percent of beds, okay, it, it it will help to bring waiting lists down, but it's it's not going to bring them down overnight. So, I think there is going to be an issue in terms of waiting lists for quite some time. Um, I suppose another issue that would worry me in relation to gear is that uh, I suppose if you if you take that in conjunction with the health service capacity review, which was published last year, uh, which kind of underpins. the the reforms in social care. Uh, I mean, they're talking about massive increase in in the health workforce. So they're talking about roughly a 20% increase in consultants, uh, notwithstanding the fact that as as Dermot mentioned earlier on, there there are a number of of, uh, consultant positions that are already vacant. Uh, You're talking a 48% increase in the primary care workforce. Uh, you know, th- these are huge figures. Now, at the moment, recruitment and retention are major issues in the Irish health system, uh, and yet we, we're, we're now talking about massively increasing our workforce at a time when other countries are also uh, experiencing a shortfall in in uh, health workforce as well. So we're we're competing in a in a, in a global marketplace now for for uh, doctors and nurses. And in fact, there was, there was um, a paper published earlier this year which suggested that by 2030. Across the OECD, we're going to have a a shortfall of 386,000 doctors and two and a half million nurses. Mm -hmm. So in that context, trying to increase our, our, our workforce by the kind of figures that we're looking at is going to be very challenging. And if we don't do that then that's going to have an implication in terms of the, uh, the implementation of Solange
1: OK, I'm just going to bring Patrick Brennan in just before we take a short break. Patrick, just Brian, on- can I
0: ask you a question on that? Uh, so, again, going back to figures and how we work them out, if, if we take, for example, that 3% you were talking about of elective procedures, um, is it fair to say that we don't know how much of that or a statistic that might be missing there is linked to people who have private health insurance and who decide on the back of being told that the waiting time for that elective procedure to go privately? And, and likewise, is the point also not to be made that not so much about you were talking about expectation of patient movement, so that being that three percent, but Dermot made a point about consultants being forced to choose whether they be public or private. Is the fear not that if if they're not being if they're being asked to make that choice, that if the choice they make is to go private? In a public healthcare system where we already are understaffed, and even in the private, you mentioned dermatologists, mm-hmm. you try to get a dermatology appointment with or without health insurance, do we not then find on the back of that skills shortage in the consultant space that there's a there's a risk of filling those spaces to the point where, I suppose, the better of the consultants or the better class of consultants ends up being found privately rather than publicly?
2: I, I think the the issue there really is is a case of how much are we going to pay the public consultants. Now, I mean, when the last consultant contract was negotiated, a, it was 2008. I think that it was eventually uh, agreed, uh, the, the three different levels. So you had your Type A consultants, which, if if memory serves, we me, were in theory at least supposed to be paid 240,000 uh, for for public work. Then the next level, the Type B. Uh, who were allowed to have a certain amount of private work on public hospital campuses. And this was at the time, co-location was still a live policy issue. It never happened. So uh, that is going to kind of further institutionalise the the treatment of private patients in public hospitals. Um, But there there was supposed to be a lower pay scale for the, the type B and then lower again for the type C who had off-site private practice. Um, so it, it, what, what we saw in that uh, RT Investigates program a couple of years ago was that uh, I think only about 6% of consultants are on the type A contracts. Mm. So 94% of consultants felt that they were better off having private practice rights. Mm. So in our fact, consultants to the, to, to the public system to do public-only work, we're, you know, we're going to have to pay them a lot more than what we were, what, what we were planning on paying them under the, uh, the last consultant contract. Now, politically, that's going to be a very difficult uh, announcement to have, for, for any health minister to have to make. And yet, that's what's going to have to happen if we are going to attract consultants into the public system. So, so that's obviously going to have an impact on, on the costs of public healthcare. Yeah. As well. So
1: it's the, it's the consultants' contracts are going to be a huge component in terms of how we deal with all of this. Effectively, is that what we're saying? Well, massive. And I
2: mean, the, 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 the negotiations on those consultant contracts. Yeah would be very interesting. But I mean, the last okay. consultant contract took about seven years to negotiate and we weren't looking at quite as radical a shift as removing private practice out of public mm. hospitals. Okay. So, uh, I mean, that, that's going to be a huge uh, determinant of, of the extent to which Solange Care uh, flies.
1: We're going to have to take a very short break. Do stay with us, though. We're, uh, we'll be joined by our panel again in just a few moments.
0: Between the Lines on News Talk.
1: You're welcome back to the second part of today's programme. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. Today, of course, we are discussing health insurance, everything from price rises, the public versus the, pub, the private provision of healthcare, and also, of course, consumer choice. Our panel still with us today, Dermot Good from TotalHealthCover.ie, Patrick Brennan, Director of Corporate Business with IHI Group, and also on the line, uh, Dr. Brian Turner, Department of Economics, Cork University Business School at uh, UCC. My thanks to you for staying with us today. We focused, I suppose, really on the first kind of element of the programme today, very specifically about the the current system in Ireland and Sláinte Care. But I just want to get a kind of a sense of what are they doing in other countries? Because we typically tend to look at the the more kind of Scandinavian uh, Nordic countries for, I suppose, best policy, if you like, or best public policy, certainly with regards to a number of kind of key social areas. But can I just maybe bring you in, Dr. Brian Turner, on... What are they doing in other countries that's working well? Because I know as somebody who's from a border area, the NHS system was always cited down through the years as um, as a system that a lot of people in the South would have liked to tap, to tap into. So what is it that, that they're doing that we could maybe try and, if you like, take some of the ideas from them?
2: Okay, well, I suppose, broadly speaking, you, you can divide other countries into to the ones that are primarily tax funded and the ones that are primarily funded by social health insurance, um, which is kind of a, very much an employment based uh, system whereby employers and employees pay a certain proportion of the employees earnings into a, a fund which is in uh, given to to sickness funds, uh, kind of quasi insurance companies really. Um, so it, it, the the general consensus across Europe is that the social health insurance uh, based systems tend to have better buy in from from consumers uh, than the tax funded ones because with the tax funded ones it's much harder to see how much of your taxes are going towards health or you know wh- where they're being spent. Uh, so you don't have that that transparency to to the same extent. Having said that, I suppose th- there's no health system in the world that's that's providing all the care that people need when they need it. So there there, there are issues with all uh, health systems. Now, interestingly, I mean you mentioned the NHS. I mean wh- while we're trying to move much more towards uh, kind of a, a separation of, of private and and, and public uh, and trying to move the public. In the UK, a lot of the reforms in recent times have actually been going in the other direction and trying to increase the amount of private work uh, in in NHS hospitals. So uh, it's it's curious that they're kind of going in the opposite direction at the the time that we're kind of uh, moving towards trying to improve the, the, the public system. Um, but I suppose the, the, the country that's probably most like Ireland is Australia, uh, whereby you have, uh, you know, universal entitlement to the, the public hospital system. Um, you have a fairly high degree of take up around mid 40% of uh, private health insurance, um, and and a good degree of overlap between the the public and the private system. So a lot of private patients are treated in public hospitals, uh, and some are treated in private hospitals. Um, so I suppose, you know, that's probably the closest comparison really to uh, the, the Irish system. But there are a couple of differences there, such as, for example, people on, on higher earnings in Australia uh, who don't take private health insurance have to pay an additional levy uh, through their taxes okay. uh, to, to, to essentially f- help to fund uh, public health care. Um, And a good degree of a good number of of consultants who have private practice rights in public hospitals in Australia don't actually exercise those rights. So that's that's quite an interesting difference there between uh, the the, the Australian and Irish systems.
1: Dermot you've spent a a lot of your uh, professional careers was working in in this particular sector. Where do you see is the kind of top countries that we should be looking to.
3: Yeah, and you know, André, it's a very hard one to answer and I wouldn't have Brian's in-depth knowledge of other health models, but like if you go back a short while, we looked at, for example, universal health insurance because like I mean, in, in Europe, the Dutch model I think in the last 5 years has been voted that, uh, let's just say the top model three of the last 5 years and that's a universal healthcare system where basically there's equal access for everybody okay everybody gets equal access there's no private versus semi-private it's it's basically one size fits all but there are no waiting lists and the problem was uh, James Riley published a paper on universal health insurance which we all i suppose dissected for 2 years but when they actually went and costed it let's just say, the actual cost of that will be significantly more than what we're currently paying. And it was just decided that that's just not going mm. to happen. Then they started looking at a hybrid model, which, let's just say, look at the German model and look at bits of the NHS. And, and really, right now, healthcare is back where it started. And the only thing on the table right now is slanter care. And I have to say, you know, whilst there might have been negative towards slanter care in the first half of the programme, like if they sort out the waiting list, if there's a genuine concerted effort to eliminate the waiting list, and that means you need to attract the nurses back. As Brian said, nurses are leaving here in their droves. So they have actually have theatres there ready, but they just don't have the nursing staff. And if you make it attractive to work in our healthcare system, and if you add in the capacity, once you get rid of those waiting lists, now consumers will have trust and faith in the system. Mm -hmm. And bear in mind, half the people who have private health insurance only do it because they don't trust the public system. Now you basically are back at a position where you can now look at maybe, um, I suppose, levelling out that two-tier system. But until we resolve the waiting list's we're going to have people going across the border using the cross-border initiative. We're going to have people, let's just say, uh, doing self-funding in private hospitals. We now have people, mm. we have family members paying fifteen, sixteen 16,000 euro so their mother or father can get a hip replacement in private hospitals because they're going to wait two to four years on our public system. Um, and that's just, it's just not acceptable. When we pay 15 billion a year towards our healthcare That's just not acceptable. The the problem is, apart from slaughter care, that's the only, I suppose, that's the only solution on the table at the moment. One other thing just on slaughter care, I mean, Andrea, that they didn't address I mean, it assumes the public and the private system are interchangeable. There's no, I mean, our public system for pro- or for psychiatric services is not fit for yeah. purposes, you know. There's no private maternity. Um, there's no private hospital now that can do all paediatrics like what you have in Cromelin and Tala and Temple Street. So there's a huge step up required and the private hospitals have invested hugely, but there's still a step up required before they can even step in there.
1: Can I bring you in, Patrick Brennan, mm. on, uh, I suppose, the... the Perhaps plans, if you like, that we might have to become a little bit more ambitious in terms of um, the other strategies that we might adopt from other EU countries or other countries or worldwide, not necessarily just in the EU.
0: Yeah, look, I think you all remember uh, Yes Minister, and uh, Brian was talking about the consultants' uh, pay pay increases that might need to be brought about. Uh, Sir Humphreys in Yes Minister used to say to uh, his minister, when he didn't want him to do something. That's a courageous decision, minister. <laughs> and the fear is, is that are politicians willing to take courageous decisions, even if the budget is available to them? So if we do a brief history of the Irish state, every 30 years since the founding of the Irish state, we've had a fairly significant recession. And the recession, the two portfolios that are usually killed in the back of the recession are healthcare and social welfare. And last one was no different and the healthcare took us smack to it as well. And it takes time to recover that and usually by the time we do recover it, the need and, and the requirements uh, but on the patient level has gone up and up and up. Um, what do I see as the, uh, look, okay, somebody mentioned the German system. Here's something that we don't take into account even in the private healthcare system. Where is the levy or, a, or, or premium or tax portion from our wages or premiums which is designed to look after us from a long-term illness perspective. Mm-hmm. We haven't even addressed that. So long-term illness... C-
1: fair deal, isn't a, as, aside, So you don't yeah. have to sell your house.
0: And I mean, even now they're finding that the calculations done on the fair deal scheme is finding that we may end up with a a, a, a lack of take-up on that because it's not financially viable or or it'll cost more. Um, so I, I think I'm right in saying that in the German system there is about a 2% of the premium that's collected is is, is put away for long-term illness care. Um, there's one thing. I, I think the point I made at the beginning of my statement was that it's going to come down to political courage. It's going to come down to having uh, a a viewpoint uninterrupted on a cross-party level for a period of time longer than two Mm. successive governments. Uh, and I really doubt whether we have the ability to do it, particularly because once we decide which direction we want to move in, we're finding, as Brian said, that those particular healthcare systems have decided to change tack because it's not working. Okay. Now, we dipped our toes in the water very quickly on the, on the universal healthcare piece on the primary care side when we decided we were going to make uh, a child's, uh, GPs free to children uh, under the age of six and that's due to be rolled out at the age of 12. Now, something that was never discussed beforehand, it's very easy to say, do you want free access to GPs? Yes, you do. Nobody asked, do you want to be able to choose your GP? And do you want to know that you can get an appointment today or tomorrow?
1: Is, there, th- a, is there a GP in your area is another yeah, issue from talking but, to the general but those practitioners
0: But those two things have suffered directly as a result of the free GP thing. It's very difficult for some people now to okay. get a GP on a same-day basis. And, and people are probably willing to pay for that too. So... It's 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 a really difficult one to do. I think probably starting in the primary care system makes sense. I think there's a lot of work to be done. We haven't even touched on technology side of 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 of, of patient records and stuff on the on the on the secondary the, the, the hospital system. You
1: know. Can just I just want to, to, to move um to just a slightly different area for a moment and maybe Brian Turner I might just to bring you in on this point and it's perhaps in specifically talking about um assuming people have private health insurance. And we'll talk about the plans and the consumer element of this in a moment, but We've seen even since um, June of this year, or certainly since the summer, at least two of the uh, private healthcare insurance or, pr- or providers have hiked up their their price premiums, and presumably a lot of that, I assume, is down to the increased cost of medical treatment of care. And obviously, look, there's there's we only have stories out this week about the number of um, people availing of cancer treatment and the advances in cancer treatment here in this country. How much of that is actually down to the, or is is due to the the price premiums?
2: I think. Well, I mean, ultimately, the, the the price of a health insurance premium or any kind of insurance premium is is mainly driven by the cost of claims. Um, so, I mean, if the cost of claims are is increasing, then the, the premiums are going to increase uh, in in a similar way. So, it's no, just it shows, the same
1: ooh. as the, the the car insurance then market effectively
2: exactly because i mean margins in the irish health insurance market are are fairly fairly tight i mean the, you know the, the insurers are not making massive profits here um so i mean the it, as i said if, if the the cost of claims is increasing that's going to drive up premiums now i suppose to a certain extent we saw a bit of a, a price war going on uh, in, over the last sort of 12 months or 18 months, I know the effect of that is being unwound a little bit, and premiums are coming back up a little bit again. Uh, so I, I, I think Dermot mentioned earlier on that the, the expectation is that there will be future premium increases uh, over the the not too distant future. And I suppose if you look historically at uh, inflation in in health insurance premiums mm. it, it vastly uh, exceeds the overall price inflation uh, in the country. I mean, which is very very moderate at the moment. Overall, the, the price level in Ireland isn't really rising very much at all. But health insurance inflation is is certainly well above that. At Why the moment. is
1: that, Brian?
2: Um, again, I suppose it's it's the cost of claims. um okay. And you know, I suppose since two two thousand fourteen, there there has been the uh, the issue of the the additional charges. Uh, for the insurers, for, for their members who are accommodated in any beds in public hospitals, whereas previously they were only charged if their members were accommodated in private beds. Um, but that bed designation was removed in 2014. Now, I know the insurers have been kind of pushing back a little bit against that and asking their members not to sign the forms uh, to say that they're private patients unless they get some benefit from that, be it faster access, be it uh, the choice of consultant, be it the the, you know, the better accommodation. Um, so there there is a bit of a pushback on that. Uh, but that is, is, has contributed to, to increased costs in recent years as well. So um, all these factors are, are are then having a knock-on impact on premiums.
1: Okay. Dermot Good, um, I suppose Irish Life and VHI were kind of two of the providers this year or in recent months to, to hike up the prices, in some cases, I think, by nearly 6%. How do they explain that to the customer, that their premiums, in some cases, are going to go up by 300 quid a year?
3: Well, it's interesting um, that you asked that because if you look back at all the press releases, <laughs> On every price increase across the health insurance, um, all the health insurance, the press releases are nearly the nearly the exact same. They will basically talk about um, new cancer drugs, new technologies, increasing medical inflation. Um, but to be fair, and I think Brian has touched on this, Andrea, not, not that I'm going to defend the health insurance companies, they don't make extraordinary profits um, you know, in, in their markets. We don't see the fluctuations like like that you would see in certain gel insurance or commercial insurance markets, and it is very much claims driven. Now, Brian touched on two things there which a lot of your your listeners may not be aware of. I mean, first of all, one third of the premium that we pay effectively goes back to the revenue commissioners and effectively makes its way indirectly to VHI. Um, So these levies that we pay, they are there to, I suppose, subsidise VHI for covering um, more of the older population, which is good in one sense. But VHI have been doing extraordinarily well over the last few years. I mean, their profits are up to 80 million euros. So year on year, VHI are doing very very well and we also saw VHI giving money away for people who signed up for direct debit and little incentives over the last couple of years so I think there's now time to review those levies because if those levies came down then health insurance Mm. premiums would come down the other thing that Brian touched on as well and I'd say this to all your listeners do not sign those forms when they go into a public hospital unless they get a private room and Patrick touched on this earlier if I'm in a public hospital and they'll say to me Dermot sign the form here we'll treat you as a private patient if I don't get a private room or get a consultant of my choice I get nothing extra they get 10 times the income they should be getting and that's feeding into our increased premiums as
1: well Okay and it was interesting that point too Patrick Brennan that was made earlier that I suppose for a lot of people it's not really about the private room or the half private room or whatever in the hospital it's it's about getting into the hospital mm. in the first place It's probably why a lot of people pay for health insurance Yeah so
0: again this goes down to I, I often say this about consumers of private health insurance they're savvy when they're consumers but when they're a patient they're a vulnerable patient and they pass that card across the te- the, the hospital admissions desk and they don't necessarily know what they're going to be covered for until they're told you're covered. Um, so when they pass over, they sign a piece of paper saying they're going to be a private patient. There is an assumption there that there will be all of those things that we mentioned. There'll be quicker access. They'll be they'll get the best consultant. Uh, invariably, very often, none of that changes. And particularly if it's a public hospital, it may well be the public consultant who is on the A and E for that that stage. And the 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 difference in the in the in the bed price, you know, goes from. €80 Euros to up to 800 mm. and if it's a private room, possibly 1000 €1,050. Um, you know, probably anecdotals are not very useful, but I'm going to give one anyway because I think it's a very extreme example. Uh, so I know somebody who, who took a fall, elderly patient took a fall, uh, was brought into A&E, uh, was examined um, and via MRIs and CAT scans, and was found that there was fluid in the brain and they needed to go to uh, get a, a shunt put in the brain, mm-hmm. so that's a that's a neurological procedure, if you like. Um, the The full turnaround time for that and any complications that may have arisen in between uh, was ninety days. Now the bill for the ninety days would be ninety thousand plus euros for the accommodation. That's what a private health insurer is paying over for accommodation. So when we're talking about claims, yeah, I mean that, that's a big issue. That that issue that James Riley brought in. It just doesn't stack up, not when you're paying PRSI and USC as well. It's double taxation by any other means. It should be reversed.
1: We're just going to take a very short break. You're listening to News Talks Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment.
0: Between the Lines on
3: News Talk.
1: You're welcome back to News Talks Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're discussing health insurance today. We've been looking at the uh, the private versus the public provision of healthcare in Ireland and also the reasons behind price rises but we want to focus specifically on um, the consumer element, the consumer choice when it comes to health insurance. What do you say to people uh, Brian Turner, I know you're joining us on the line this, uh, today Brian Turner the, from the Department of Economics at Cork University Business School at UCC, to people who are maybe don't have health insurance but are thinking that they probably maybe need to get on the ladder at this stage?
2: Okay, well, so there, there are a couple of things there. I mean, one is that in 2015, uh, the government introduced what's known as lifetime community rating. Now, the idea behind that is to try and ensure that we have a, a sufficient number of younger people coming into the market to cross-subsidise the older people who, who tend to have higher claims costs. But from a consumer point of view, the, the upshot of that is that if, if you wait until the age of 35 or above to take out health insurance for the first time, then you may be subject to additional uh, levies or an additional percentage of the the basic premium. So if you're 34 or under, and you take out health insurance for the first time, you will take out, you you will pay the basic premium. If you're 35, you'll pay 102% of the basic premium. If you're 36, 104%, and so on. So if if people are thinking about taking out health insurance for the first time, I suppose that's one thing. Think about it before you're thir- before or at the age of 34. No, there is uh, provision there for uh, time spent previously with health insurance, so that would be taken into account as well. So that's one thing. I suppose the second thing is if if you're thinking of getting on the ladder, um, I suppose th- there are some plans at the lower priced end of the market, but the, the cover is very limited. So okay, you might be on the on the ladder, but you know you mightn't really have a whole lot of cover mm. there to, to 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 fall back on. So if you can at all. Uh, kind of go for a plan that gives you some cover in a, in a private hospital, uh, then I think that would probably be worth uh, stretching towards uh, a little bit. Okay. Um, and obviously, you know, the other thing to bear in mind is that if you do just get on the ladder and then you upgrade at a later stage, there's what's known as a, an upgrade in cover waiting period, uh, which is two years for anything to do with a pre-existing condition in a hospital. So just to bear that in mind, um, if you have pre-existing conditions in particular.
1: Dermot Good, how do you try to explain to the insurance company that you don't have a pre-existing condition that you actually knew about?
3: Yeah, and that, that is very difficult. I mean, um, well, what we'd say to people is that the, the, the claims assessment system is very fair. I, I paid claims for years in a previous life with VHI. And to be fair to the insurance companies, like 95, 96% of all claims are paid. They're really only trying to, I suppose, uh, identify those people that know they have a condition and are joining especially because they now know Mm. they need to get treatment. That would be an abuse of the system. Um, But by and large, all bona fide claims are paid. Sometimes, and this is where it's very important, you are very specific when you're with your doctor. When the doctor, the GP asks you, how long are you feeling that way or how long is that there? When you tell them, you know, if you only have health insurance A year and you say oh it's there a couple of years well now you've just basically disclosed you have a pre-existing condition so we would always say to people just be very specific with the information you give to your gp that goes on record that goes to the consultant that ends up on the claim form now we would never advocate non-disclosure but at the same time people just need to be very very clear the system is very fair Andre, in terms of the way they do it i mean what what i would say they're just picking up on a couple of things brian said one of the things we always say to consumers when people say how much should i pay and they want to go in at the lowest level If you go in, if I end up in Tala Hospital for two weeks, having had a tonsillectomy or an appendicectomy, I owe them €800. So I'm going to be out of pocket €800 every year, and that's for children as well. So we would say to people, look, for €950... an extra 150 over and above what you're currently on the hook for, you can buy a private room or private hospital plan with all three insurance companies. The benefit plan, I should say, with Irish Life, the Essential Health 300 with Leia, the one plan 250 with VHI, all good mid-level plans that give you access to public and private hospitals. Thereafter, then, you can go higher, but that's, you know, a good advisor will work out exactly, well, do you need to spend any more? Like, do you want a private mm. room? Do you want a lower excess... You've heard me speak previously, Andre, about these corporate plans. Yeah, yeah. And I would say to all of your listeners now, if you're on the same plan for three or four years or more, if you're not on a corporate plan, check out those plans because anybody in the market can join those plans. They're the best value mm-hmm. plans by a mile.
1: I suppose, Patrick, that's your kind of specific area in terms of the, the corporate um, element of it. But can I ask you just, what what should people do? I mean, if I'm sitting on my plan, which I think actually I, I might be <laughs> for about three or four years, what is it that you should do to... To look at the other options, because I would have thought there was quite a number of plans out there that wouldn't be available to the likes of myself. Yeah,
0: but. Well, I suppose this comes, you know. So we, the the way our system is 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 different from most systems, and and one of the reasons it's very similar to Australia's, as Brian said, is it's a community rated system. So effectively, a plan has a price, and if you're 26 or you're 96, when you're on that plan, you pay the same premium aside from any lifetime community rating that may or may not apply. So what does that mean? It means, it means that there's a, there's a one cost per plan per adult. Also the other thing in lifetime community rating means that there's open enrollment, which means any plan that's on the market is available to anyone in the market. So that advisors can take advantage of that for clients. So for example, let's say there is a brand new tech company with an average age of 26 and the insurer says, we like these guys, nice premiums, low risk, we'll give them a great deal. As soon as that deal is agreed and that plan is built and put on the market, uh, aside from any discount which may be given to the, to the to the corporate, and that's only a maximum of 10% anyway under legislation, that, that plan, whoever it's built for, is, is available to anybody on the market providing okay. their, their window of renewal I, I, is at that right time. So really the trick around this is navigation. It's being able to navigate. So if it's that easy... There's your answer as to why it has 340 odd plans okay. <laughs> because it makes it harder to find the deals. And But eventually, people do find the deals and what happens, of course, is the claims ratio on that plan goes up and as it does, it has to be repriced and below it comes in a new plan with the same benefits and a different name under the door. Hence, if you're on the one for three to five years okay. that's seen a premium increase, you need to look for the new one.
1: I'm just conscious of the time. Can no. I'll come to you both, but Patrick, can I just ask you, what's your kind of best advice for people who are maybe thinking about getting on the health insurance ladder and just who maybe previously haven't had private health insurance before
0: look uh, first of all we have to recognise that health insurance is the same as any insurance it's a begrudged payment nobody likes paying insurance but there's one thing people like less and that is going to use it and finding it's not going to do what they're paying for it to do so from my perspective public uh, hospital only cover out I'm not a fan I don't believe it'll get you where you want to be in terms of the reason that people have and continue to have private health insurance speedy access so go for one with private health insurance or private hospitals if that means an excess of 600 euros per claim so be it that's much less of a barrier to care than not having the cover at all next one as Brian said get in before you're 35 because that loading that kicks in after you're 35 mm. stays with you for 10 years Um, So, you better get in before that. Uh, Also, that pre-existing condition, that's been redefined at the same time um, that that loading came in, in 2015. And really now what it says, if you were symptom-free in the last six months, then it's not a pre-existing condition. So, there's a bit of comfort there as well. Um, But certainly, I would say seek advice. It seems strange to anybody else, any other market that we wouldn't. We do regularly. So seek advice. There's 340 plans out there. You're not going to go through it, and if you do and find something, you're not. You can't be understood. You can't be expected to understand the minutia.
1: Mm-hmm. I feel like we're having the pensions discussion Dermot good, but you might give us your your tips as well for trying to navigate as uh, as Patrick mentioned the uh, the private health insurance market.
3: Well, what I would say to all your listeners, first and foremost, you must do something. Too many of your listeners, uh, too many people auto renew and that just simply means they let their cover roll over. And it's mostly older members because they're afraid. They think they're going to lose benefits. They think they'll have to reserve waiting periods. They think they will have age loadings. They think the insurance company will exclude any existing conditions. The legislation is very protective of consumers, so none of that will apply. So, effectively, if I switch to an equivalent plan, if it's 800 euro cheaper, but it still covers a semi-private and private hospitals, Mm. they must pay my claim. That's the law. So, we'd say that to people straight away. The second thing is take on a small excess. So, a small excess, maybe 75 euro per claim or 100 euro per claim. There are plans out there that cost 2,700. You can get better cover for 1,500 euro, sometimes with the same insurance company. And I would say once again to any maybe younger people who are listening to this program, I guarantee you that their mams and dads are on those dated plans, some of them going Mm. back 30 years, and they're paying maybe sometimes a €1,000 extra per adult. So do you know what? We say to all those siblings, you do the review for your parents. And, And Patrick mentioned something that's really important. Do not rely on health insurance comparison sites. There is no site out there that's allowed to give you advice. And even some of the data on those sites is not entirely accurate. So we would say to everybody, use those sites as a guide but never make your final decision based on one of those sites you need to get advice and a good advisor will do the heavy lifting for okay. you and if you're going to save a thousand euro per adult any fee you might be charged you'll save multiples of that but you must do something don't let it auto you.
1: Lots to consider my thanks to you all for joining us on the programme today Dermot Good TotalHealthCover.ie Patrick Brennan Director of Corporate Business with IHI Group and Dr Brian Turner who joined us on the line from the Department of Economics Cork University Business School at UCC uh, My thanks to all of the panellists if you've missed any of the programme you can still download the podcast on our website at newstalk.com or search for the Go Loud app as well on iTunes or any other podcast player. My thanks to the production team, Elaine Power, Stephen Jordan. I'll be back again with Breakfast Briefing on Monday morning from six and with Between the Lines this time next week. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day.